Section eleven of My First Summer in the Sierra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. My First Summer in the Sierra by John Muir. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. August four. It seems strange to sleep in a paltry hotel chamber, after the spacious magnificence and luxury of the starry sky and silver fir grove. Bad farewell to my friend and the general. The old soldier was very kind, and an interesting talker. He told me long stories of the Florida Seminole War, in which he took part, and invited me to visit him in Omaha. Calling Carlo, I scrambled home through the Indian Canyon gate, rejoicing, pitying the poor professor and general, bounded by clocks, almanacs, orders, duties, etc., and compelled to dwell with lowland care and dust and din, where nature is covered and her voice smothered, while the poor, insignificant wanderer enjoys the freedom and glory of God's wilderness. Apart from the human interest of my visit to-day, I greatly enjoyed Yosemite, which I had visited only once before, having spent eight days last spring in rambling amid its rocks and waters. Wherever we go in the mountains, or indeed in any of God's wild fields, we find more than we seek. Descending four thousand feet in a few hours, we enter a new world. Climate, plants, sounds, inhabitants, and scenery, all new or changed. Near camp the gold-cup oak forms sheets of chaparral, on top of which we may make our beds. Going down the Indian canyon we observe this little bush changing by regular gradations to a large bush, a small tree, and then larger, until on the rocky taluses near the bottom of the valley we find it developed into a broad, wide-spreading, gnarled, picturesque tree from four to eight feet in diameter, and forty or fifty feet high. Innumerable are the forms of water displayed. Every gliding reach, cascade and fall has characters of its own. Had a good view of the Vernal and Nevada two of the main falls of the valley, less than a mile apart, and offering striking differences in voice, form, colour, etc. The Vernal, four hundred feet high and about seventy-five or eighty feet wide, drops smoothly over a round-lipped precipice, and forms a superb apron of embroidery, green and white, slightly folded and fluted, maintaining this form nearly to the bottom where it is suddenly veiled in quick-flying billows of spray and mist, in which the afternoon sunbeams play with ravishing beauty of rainbow colours. The Nevada is white from its first appearance as it leaps out into the freedom of the air. At the head it presents a twisted appearance by an overfolding of the current from striking on the side of its channel just before the first free outbounding leap is made. About two-thirds of the way down, 
the hurrying throng of comet-shaped masses glance on an inclined part of the face of the precipice, and are beaten into yet whiter foam, greatly expanded and sent bounding outward, making an indescribably glorious show, especially when the afternoon sunshine is pouring into it. In this fall, one of the most wonderful in the world, the water does not seem to be under the dominion of ordinary laws, but rather as if it were a living creature, full of the strength of the mountains and their huge wild joy. From beneath the heavy, throbbing blasts of spray the broken river is seen emerging in ragged, boulder-chafed strips. These are speedily gathered into a roaring torrent, showing that the young river is still gloriously alive. On it goes, shouting, roaring, exulting in its strength, passes through a gorge with sublime display of energy, then suddenly expands on a gently inclined pavement down which it rushes in thin sheets and folds of lacework into a quiet pool—emerald pool, as it is called—a stopping-place, a period separating two grand sentences. Resting here long enough to part with its foam-bells and grey mixtures of air, it glides quietly to the verge of the vernal precipice in a broad sheet, and makes its new display in the vernal fool. Then more rapids and rock-tossings down the canyon, shaded by live-oak, douglas-spruce, fir, maple, and dogwood. It receives the Illouette tributary, and makes a long sweep out into the level, sun-filled valley to join the other streams which, like itself, have danced and sung their way down from snowy heights to form the main Merced, the river of mercy. But of this there is no end, and life, when one thinks of it, is so short. Never mind, one day in the midst of these divine glories is well worth living and toiling and starving for. Before parting with Professor Butler, he gave me a book, and I gave him one of my pencil sketches for his little son Henry, who is a favourite of mine. He used to make many visits to my room when I was a student. Never shall I forget his patriotic speeches for the Union, mounted on a tall stool, when he was only six years old. It seems so strange that visitors to Yosemite should be so little influenced by its novel grandeur, as if their eyes were bandaged and their ears stopped. Most of those I saw yesterday were looking down, as if wholly unconscious of anything going on about them, while the sublime rocks were trembling with the tones of the mighty chanting congregation of waters gathered from all the mountains round about, making music that might draw angels out of heaven. Yet respectable-looking, even wise-looking people, were fixing bits of worms on bent pieces of wire to catch trout. Sport, they call it. Should churchgoers try to pass the time fishing in the baptismal fonts while dull sermons were being preached, the so-called sport might not be so bad. But to play in the Yosemite temple, seeking pleasure 
in the pain of fishes struggling for their lives, while God himself is preaching his sublimest water and stone sermons. Now I'm back at the campfire, and cannot help thinking about my recognition of my friend's presence in the valley while he was four or five miles away, and while I had no means of knowing that he was not thousands of miles away. It seems supernatural, but only because it is not understood. Anyhow, it seems silly to make so much of it, while the natural and common is more truly marvellous and mysterious than the so-called supernatural. Indeed, most of the miracles we hear of are infinitely less wonderful than the commonest of natural phenomena, when fairly seen. Perhaps the invisible rays that struck me while I sat at work on the dome are something like those which attract and repel people at first sight concerning which much nonsense has been written. The worst apparent effect of these mysterious odd things is blindness to all that is divinely common. Hawthorne, I fancy, could weave one of his weird romances out of this little telepathic episode, the one strange marvel of my life, probably replacing my good old professor by an attractive woman. August 5. We were awakened this morning before daybreak by the furious barking of Carlo and Jack, and the sound of stampeding sheep. Billy fled from his punk bed to the fire, and refused to stir into the darkness to try to gather the scattered flock, or ascertain the nature of the disturbance. It was a bear attack, as we afterward learned and I suppose little was gained by attempting to do anything before daylight. Nevertheless, being anxious to know what was up, Carlo and I groped our way through the woods, guided by the rustling sounds made by the fragments of the flock, not fearing the bear, for I knew that the runaways would go from their enemy as far as possible, and Carlo's nose was also to be depended on. About half a mile east of the corral we overtook twenty or thirty of the flock, and succeeded in driving them back. Then, turning to the westward, we traced another band of fugitives, and got them back to the flock. After daybreak I discovered the remains of a sheep-carcass, still warm, showing that Bruin must have been enjoying his mutton breakfast, while I was seeking the runaways. He had eaten about half of it. Six dead sheep lay in the corral, evidently smothered by the crowding and piling up of the flock against the side of the corral wall when the bear entered. Making a wide circuit of the camp, Carlo and I discovered a third band of fugitives, and drove them back to camp. We also discovered another dead sheep, half-eaten, showing that there had been two of the shaggy freebooters at this early breakfast. They were easily traced. They had each caught a sheep, jumped over the corral fence with them, carrying them as a cat carries a mouse, laid them at the foot of fir-trees a hundred yards or so back from the corral, and eaten their fill. After breakfast I set out to seek more of the lost, and found seventy-five at a considerable distance from camp. In the afternoon I succeeded, with Carlo's help, in getting them back to the flock. I don't know whether all are together again or not. I shall make a big fire this evening, and keep watch. 
When I asked Billy why he had made his bed against the corral in rotten wood, when so many better places offered, he replied that he wished to be as near the sheep as possible in case bears should attack them. Now that the bears have come he has moved his bed to the far side of the camp, and seems afraid that he may be mistaken for a sheep. This has been mostly a sheep day, and of course studies have been interrupted. Nevertheless, the walk through the gloom of the woods before dawn was worth while, and I have learned something about these noble bears. Their tracks are very telling, and so are their breakfasts. Scarce a trace of clouds to-day, and of course our ordinary midday thunder is wanting. August 6. Enjoyed the grand illumination of the camp-grove last night, from the fire we made to frighten the bears. Compensation for loss of sleep and sheep. The noble pillars of verdure, vividly aglow, seemed to shoot into the sky like the flames that lighted them. Nevertheless, one of the bears paid us another visit. As if more attracted than repelled by the fire, climbed into the corral, killed a sheep, and made off with it without being seen, while still another was lost by trampling and suffocation against the side of the corral. Now that our mutton has been tasted, I suppose it will be difficult to put a stop to the ravages of these freebooters. The Don arrived to-day from the lowlands with provisions and a letter. On learning the losses he has sustained, he determined to move the flock at once to the upper Tuolumne region, saying that the bears would be sure to visit the camp every night as long as we stayed, and that no fire or noise we might make would avail to frighten them. No clouds, save a few thin, lustrous touches on the eastern horizon. Thunder heard in the distance. August 7. Early this morning bade good-bye to the bears and the blessed silver fir camp, and moved slowly eastward along the mono-trail. At sundown camped for the night on one of the many small flowery meadows so greatly enjoyed in my excursion to Lake Tanaya. The dusty, noisy flock seems outrageously foreign and out of place in these nature-gardens, more so than bears among sheep. The harm they do goes to the heart. But glorious hope lifts above all the dust and din, and bids me to look forward to a good time coming, when money enough will be earned to enable me to go walking where I like, in pure wilderness, with what I can carry on my back, and, when the bread-sack is empty, run down to the nearest point on the bread-line for more. Nor will these run-downs be blanks, for, whether up or down, every step and jump on these blessed mountains is full of fine lessons. August 8. Camp at the west end of Lake Tanaya. Arriving early I took a walk on the glacier-polished pavements along the north shore, and climbed the magnificent mountain rock at the east end of the lake, now shining in the late afternoon light. Almost every yard of its surface shows the scoring and polishing action of a great glacier that enveloped it, and swept heavily over its summit. 
though it is about two thousand feet high above the lake and ten thousand above sea-level. This majestic ancient ice-flow came from the eastward, as the scoring and crushing of the surface shows. Even below the waters of the lake the rock in some places is still grooved and polished. The lapping of the waves and their disintegrating action have not as yet obliterated even the superficial marks of glaciation. In climbing the steepest polished places I had to take off shoes and stockings. A fine region this for study of glacial action in mountain-making. I found many charming plants—arctic daisies, phlox, white spurrea, bryanthus and rock-ferns, pelea, chalanthus, allosaurus, fringing weathered seams all the way up to the summit, and sturdy junipers grand old grey and brown monuments stood bravely erect on fissured spots here and there, telling storm and avalanche stories of hundreds of winters. The view of the lake from the top is, I think, the best of all. There is another rock, more striking in form than this, standing isolated at the head of the lake, but it is not more than half as high. It is a knob or knot of burnished granite perhaps a thousand feet high, apparently as flawless and strong in structure as a wave-worn pebble, and probably owes its existence to the superior resistance it offered to the action of the overflowing ice-flood. Made sketch of the lake, and sauntered back to camp, my iron-shod shoes clanking on the pavements, disturbing the chipmunks and birds. After dark went out to shore. Not a breath of air astir, the lake a perfect mirror, reflecting the sky and mountains with their stars and trees and wonderful sculpture, all their grandeur refined and doubled. A marvellously impressive picture that seemed to belong more to heaven than earth. August 9 I went ahead of the flock and crossed over the divide between the Merced and Ptolemy basins. The gap between the east end of the Hoffman Spur and the mass of mountain rocks about Cathedral Peak, though roughened by ridges and waving folds, seems to be one of the channels of a broad ancient glacier that came from the mountains on the summit of the range. In crossing this divide, the Ice River made an ascent of about five hundred feet from the Tuolumne Meadows. This entire region must have been overswept by ice. From the top of the divide, and also from the big Tuolumne Meadows, the wonderful mountain called Cathedral Peak is in sight. From every point of view it shows marked individuality. It is a majestic temple of one stone, hewn from the living rock and adorned with spires and pinnacles in regular cathedral style. The dwarf pines on the roof look like mosses. I hope sometime to climb to it to say my prayers and hear the stone sermons. The big Tuolumne meadows are flowery lawns lying along the south fork of the Tuolumne River at a height of about 8,500 to 9,000 feet above the sea, partially separated by forest bars of glaciated granite. 
Here the mountains seem to have cleared away or set back, so that wide-open views may be had in every direction. The upper end of the series lies on the base of Mount Lyell, the lower range, the lower below the east end of the Hoffman range, so that the length must be about ten or twelve miles. They vary in width from a quarter of a mile to perhaps three-quarters, and a good many branch meadows put out along the banks of the tributary streams. This is the most spacious and delightful high-pleasure ground I have yet seen. The air is keen and bracing, yet warm during the day, and though lying high in the sky, the surrounding mountains are so much higher, one feels protected as if in a grand hall. Mounts Dana and Gibbs, massive red mountains, perhaps thirteen thousand feet high or more, bound the view on the east. The Union and Unicorn peaks, with many nameless peaks, on the south, the Hoffman Range on the west, and a number of peaks, unnamed as far as I know, on the north. One of these last is much like the cathedral. The grass of the meadows is mostly fine and silky, with exceedingly slender leaves, making a close sod, above which the panicles of minute purple flowers seem to float in airy, misty lightness, while the sod is enriched with at least three species of geniton, and as many more of orthocarpus, pontilla, ivestia, solidago, penstemon, with their gay colours, purple, blue, yellow and red, all of which I may know better ere long. A central camp will probably be made in this region, from which I hope to make long excursions into the surrounding mountains. On the return trip I met the flock about three miles east of Lake Tanaya. Here we camped for the night near a small lake lying on top of the divide in a clump of the two-leaved pine. We are now about nine thousand feet above the sea. Small lakes abound in all sorts of situations, on ridges, along mountain sides, and in piles of moraine boulders, most of them mere pools. Only in those canyons of the larger streams at the foot of declivities, where the down-thrust of the glaciers was heaviest, do we find lakes of considerable size and depth. How grateful a task it would be to trace them all and study them! How pure their waters are, clear as crystal in polished stone basins! None of them, so far as I have seen, have fishes, I suppose on account of falls making them inaccessible. Yet one would think their eggs might get into these lakes by some chance or other, on ducks' feet, for example, or in their mouths, or in their crops, or as some plant seeds are distributed. Nature has so many ways of doing such things. How did the frogs, found in all bogs and pools and lakes, however high, manage to get up these mountains? Surely not by jumping. Such excursions through miles of dry brush and boulders would be very hard on frogs. Perhaps their stringy, gelatinous spawn is occasionally entangled or glued on the feet of water-birds. Anyhow, here they are, and in hearty health and voice. I like their cheery trunk and crink. They take the place of songbirds at a pinch. August 10. Another of those charming, 
exhilarating days that make the blood dance, and excites the nerve-currents that render one unweariable and well-nigh immortal. Had another view of the broad ice-ploughed divide, and gazed again and again at the Sierra Temple and the great red mountains east of the meadows. We are camped near the Soda Springs on the north side of the river. A hard time we had getting the sheep across. They were driven into a horseshoe bend and fairly crowded off the bank. They seemed willing to suffer death rather than risk getting wet, though they swim well enough when they have to. Why sheep should be so unreasonably afraid of water I don't know, but they do fear it as soon as they are born, and perhaps before. I once saw a lamb only a few hours old approach a shallow stream about two feet wide and an inch deep, after it had walked only about a hundred yards on its life's journey. All the flock to which it belonged had crossed this inch-deep stream, and, as the mother and her lamb were the last to cross, I had a good opportunity to observe them. As soon as the flock was out of the way, the anxious mother crossed over and called the youngster. It walked cautiously to the brink, gazed at the water, bleated piteously, and refused to venture. The patient mother went back to it again and again to encourage it, but long without avail. Like the pilgrim on Jordan's stormy bank, it feared to launch away. At length, gathering its trembling inexperienced legs for the mighty effort, throwing up its head as if it knew all about drowning and was anxious to keep its nose above water, it made the tremendous leap and landed in the middle of the inch-deep stream. It seemed astonished to find that, instead of sinking over head and ears, only its toes were wet, gazed at the shining water a few seconds, and then sprang to the shore, safe and dry, through the dreadful adventure. All kinds of wild sheep are mountain animals, and their descendants' dread of water is not easily accounted for. August 11. Fine, shining weather, with a ten minutes noon thunderstorm and rain. Rambling all day, getting acquainted with the region north of the river. Found a small lake, and many charming glacier meadows, emblossomed in an extensive forest of the two-leaved pine. The forest is growing on broad, almost continuous deposits of moraine material, is remarkably even in its growth, and the trees are much closer together than in any of the fir or pine woods farther down the range. The evenness of the growth would seem to indicate that the trees are all of the same age, or nearly so. This regularity has probably been in great part the result of fire. I saw several large patches and strips of dead bleached spars, the ground beneath them covered with a young, even growth. Fire can run in these woods, not only because the thin bark of the trees is dripping with resin, but because the growth is close, and the comparatively rich soil produces good crops of tall, broad-leafed grasses on which fire can travel, even when the weather is calm. Besides these fire-killed patches there are a good many fallen, uprooted trees here and there, 
some with the bark and needles still on, as if they had been lately blown down in some thunderstorm blast. Saw a large black-tailed deer, a buck with antlers like the upturned roots of a fallen pine. After a long ramble through the dense encumbered woods, I emerged upon a smooth meadow full of sunshine, like a lake of light, about a mile and a half long, a quarter or half a mile wide, and bounded by tall, arrowy pines. The sod, like that of all the glacier meadows hereabouts, is made of silky agrosis and calamagrosis chiefly, their panicles of purple flowers and purple stems exceeding light and airy, seem to float above the green plush of leaves like a thin misty cloud, while the sod is brightened by several species of gentian, pontilla, evesta, orthocarpus, and their corresponding bees and butterflies. All the glacier meadows are beautiful, but few are so perfect as this one. Compared with it, the most carefully levelled, licked, snipped artificial lawns of pleasure-grounds are coarse things. I should like to live here always. It is so calm and withdrawn, while open to the universe in full communion with everything good. To the north of this glorious meadow I discovered the camp of some Indian hunters. Their fire was still burning but they had not yet returned from the chase. From meadow to meadow, every one beautiful beyond telling. And from lake to lake, through groves and belts of arrowy trees, I held my way northward toward Mount Conness, finding telling beauty everywhere, while the encompassing mountains were calling, Come! Hope I may climb them all. End of section 11